0: Ah, so y'all, six year anniversary. Let's jump into it. We are in the middle of a series inside the book of Ecclesiastes. For those who can't find it in your Bibles, that's okay. It's in the middle. You'll find Psalms and just take a take a right. You'll run into Ecclesiastes or you've got it printed in your bulletins. And then some of us. Um have these little books and have been so very helpful. I don't know about y'all's, but this is what my book look like looks like. I mean, just scarring it up. I'm just really enjoying that. That's a resource in the back for you if you want to pick one up. Um, so just just know that. All right. So many of you in here, men, women, high schoolers, college students, many of you in here, you guys hate your work. I mean, you just hate it. You hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it because it just feels laborsome because that's what it is. Work is labor. It feels like a rat race because that's what it is. It feels like a nine to five because that's what it is. It feels like the daily grind because that's what it is and you just hate it. And so when the alarm goes off in the morning, you just push snooze over and over because you don't want reality to hit you. You hate going to work. You hate it. In fact, some of you just go to work to get out of work. So you make your money so that you can live for the weekends, amen? And so the only reason you're working is so that you can go on vacation. Or some of you are getting a little aged to you, and the only reason you're hanging on is so that one day you will kick the boss in the keister, right? Say hello or goodbye to the industry, and you can retire to that beach home in Hilton Head, right? So there are a portion of you in here that just kind of hates the work. And then there are some in here that absolutely love it. You talk about the daily grind and you can't wait for it. You think competition is the best. Most people use this phrase, a dog-eat-dog, like a pejorative, like something that shouldn't be done. And yet you, worker people, you get out of bed and you're like, no, the dog-eat-dog world, that's what I'm created for, and you love it. Whether you love it or you hate it, Work is work, and you can tell that oftentimes it's tough out there. Companies are buying other companies and merging and growing bigger. Industry standards are getting higher. All of you, or potentially some of you, are wrapped up in the New York Stock Exchange and whether it goes high or low. Sometimes you are inside of a corporation that will do anything to get ahead, so much so that the the actual epitome of success is to being on a Fortune 500 team. It's tough out there. Work is hard. And unfortunately, Because we want to get ahead so badly, you and I will not mind one iota that we step on or we destroy other people in order for us to get ahead. Let me say that one more time. Success and work is so important to some of us that we will step on or destroy someone else in order for you and I to get ahead of ourselves. So how should Christians, how should people who follow Jesus, who open up the Bible, how should you and I look at work? Um, How do you and I compete in this very competitive world? Well, for us, we look at the Bible. And some of you would be very surprised to know that the Bible actually says a lot about work. And when it talks about work, oftentimes it tells us that work is accompanied with dignity. It elevates work and it says that work is dignified. That means that it's good. So over and over we read the scriptures and what it says about work and we see that it's dignified and it's good and worthwhile. And yet when we look at either the Wall Street Journal or the Fox Business Channel, it looks more like that dog-eat-dog world. So which is it? A correct way to look at work is through the lens of what the Bible tells us about work. We go to the literal first paragraph, or even the first verse of the Bible, and guess what you will find? You'll find a verse, you'll find a chapter, you'll find three chapters that actually talk about work first. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some of us even know that verse by memory. But this word create is another word for what? Work or build or formation. So in the beginning, God worked. He is bringing dignity and worth to this idea of work. First, we realize that God was before time and space. But the second characteristic that we hear from God is that he is the key or the initial worker. And so that brings some value to it, doesn't it? But then God goes on to do some other things. Not only does he create, but he creates a garden. He creates animals. He creates light and and darkness. And then he creates our very first parents. He creates Adam and Eve, our great, 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 whatever grandparents, our very first people on planet Earth. He creates Adam and Eve. And when he looks at his creation, what does he do? He has this repeated phrase at the end of every day, and that repeated phrase is what? It is good, right? He looks at Adam and Eve, and he says, this is very good. And so what is Jesus, or what is the Lord doing here with work? He's actually linking it with enjoyment, He's linking work with this idea that's very positive, that it's very good. So you and I see work post-fall or post-the curse or post-sin. But before all of that, God worked and rejoiced in that. The way that God begins is the fact that God is the first worker. Even in the Gospel of John, we hear this, and the Father is always at work to this very day. God's crown achievement and crown creation is man and woman, whom he made in his image and likeness, in whom he reflected with greatness and joy and delight. But then the second thing he does, he looks to man, he looks to woman, and he commissions them. He actually tells them to go and do something. And you know what he asks them to do? The very first commission... Is a commission of work. It's in God's nature, and our first commission is for us to go, to fill, right, do, to have dominion, to have authority. He gives us a the mandate that started in him. So you and I have to prioritize uh, what we think about work and bring it back to this idea of dignity and worth and even reflection and glory, and then also commissioned by God himself. In today's passage, we'll read a passage that looks a little bit like this. It's coming. To properly understand work, you must first understand God. So this is the principle that we're going to be talking about all day long, is that before we understand what this work is, we first and foremost have to understand God. what, uh, What the writer of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 3 is something very similar that we see in the creation account. He says this in Ecclesiastes 3, he says this, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. To understand work, we got to understand God. And when God links work, he oft- oftentimes links it with this idea of rejoicing or the fact that you and I should enjoy our work. And yet you and I go to work most days not to enjoy it or rejoice in it, but to buy things that we will enjoy. Uh-oh. And so you don't see the rejoicing in the work part You rejoice in the fact that the work part gives you a paycheck and then you can purchase the fun part or the enjoyment part. And what God is grounding deep inside of our core is this idea that work and rejoicing and commission are together over and over. So there's a three-step process in the first three chapters of Genesis. Number one, we see that God rejoices in his creation. The second thing we see is that God commissions man and wife in the same way that he, comm- that he has his character. So the commission comes out of his character. But the third thing happens in, in uh, Genesis 3 is that mankind, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sin. S-I-N, they sin. And the sin is very simply that you walked away from God's intended purpose. You see, God is the sustainer of all things. God is the giver of all things. Throughout the scriptures, we see that God's clothes, that He shepherds, uh, that He sustains, and all of these other kind of working, that it is God who does this. But in the fall of man and wife, they walk away from God's intended purpose and they strike out their own path. And that own path is a path of independence away from God saying, I don't need your ways. I can go it alone. And so it's not just out of God's character, not only just a commission, but we now understand that when sin enters the world, it is so pervasive that it impacts All types of relationships. First and foremost, we hear that the relationship with God has severed. And so man and wife run and hide and sin and shame and try to cover up. And so because they're so embarrassed because of their sin. The second is that they look to each other, husband and wife, and they look at each other and they start blaming one another. Their relationship with God and now their relationship with one another is severed or, or impacted in a great way. But the third thing in the topic of today is the fact that our relationship with work is impacted severely. Upon the curse, upon sin, we know that nature rebels. And so the woman and all of the pain of motherhood is impacted greatly. In the same way that by the sweat of his brow, right, and the thorns and thistles of the ground, we know that work now becomes a heartache. King Solomon is a great observer of life. We've seen him over and over and over look at different aspects of life and relationships and distill it down into its very core. So far we've seen him talk about work and talk about toil, but we've not heard him talk about just how wicked and twisted our work can easily become. So he looks at our work and he looks at our world and what he finds in our passage today are two very dark and two very disruptive pictures of of work. You see, what Solomon sees is that work, even though it was created for enjoyment, what we'll see in today's passage, it's now motivated by envy. And so what was meant for and created for enjoyment, and I mean, you are to enjoy your work. You are to rejoice in it. It is very good, is now motivated by another twisted word called Envy. Envy, if you look in the Bible, I mean, we, we know it uh, through movies and songs and other things that envy is one of the seven deadly sins. And just that phrase alone that it's deadly is that when you, in, when you engage in envy, it's going to lead you to a place of death. So when your work or while you get out of bed is motivated by envy. Just know the path is a very dark path. We know early in the scriptures that the first first murder comes between two brothers when there was only four people on planet Earth, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And the murder, Cain, of Abel was over envy. And so envy is rooted in our hearts and rooted in our minds and impacts the way that we see the world. And so envy um, has two directions. Envy pushes your neighbor down so that you will be lifted up. You will go to great extents to push someone else down so that you can be lifted up because you want someone else's something. Because you want it or you desire it so badly, you will go to great extents to push other people down so you can have what they have. And so the first picture that we have of, the first dark picture of how envy impacts us is this idea. Oh, here's the verse that goes with it. I think that this is important. Uh, In our passage, Ephesians 4, 4 says this, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes out of a man's what? Envy of his neighbor. We know that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? This is part of the great uh, commandment of Jesus. But instead, that all of this work has just a motivation of the fact that it's the envy of our neighbor, And so this envy impacts us in two ways. First, envy impacts us with injustice. Let's open up our scriptures and let's read a pretty large portion of scripture just to see how envy has an impact on our work and it actually leads us to a path of destruction which Solomon calls injustice. This is verse 16 and following. Moreover, I saw under the sun... That in the place of justice, right? We're talking about injustice here. But in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Huh. Even here. Do you know this picture? Do you know this image? This is Lady Justice. And she is supposed to be blind to whatever is going on around her so that she can weigh right and wrong. And so what Solomon is saying is even inside the courts, even the place of justice, you're going to actually find wickedness. Keep going in verse 16. And in the place of righteousness, even there is wickedness. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So first and foremost, what we see in this passage is that in the places of justice, we actually see wickedness. In the place that should be fair, we actually find things that are unfair. The the attorneys, the lawyers, the judges, the courts, whatever it is, the place that should be the direct path, that should be blind to circumstances, that should be able to weigh these things of right and wrong. In the place of justice, even there you're going to find wickedness. Because envy is so, so strong that it even permeates places that should not be touched. But it does. It's shocking to see the fact that even in the court of law, that we cannot be confident that we will find what is right and true. As a preacher observes, he says that this place can't even be trusted. Even the place of judgment. You see, what we find in places and courtrooms around our country and around the world is the fact that the people who are guilty get acquitted. And the people who are depraved of rights actually just continue to be silent. And so that's what we see. We see that even in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. And the verse 17 says something else. It says that we finally see that God will be the judge of the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time, speaking of last week, there's a time and season for everything. There is a time for every matter and every work. We see that God is the one who will judge because we cannot trust this We must rely and we must trust on this. God will ultimately judge all that is right and wrong. So if our picture is Lady Justice, stop. In fact, you need to go all the way back to our creator who is and will be the judge of all things. King Solomon says in his heart, ultimately it is God who will do this for us. Yes, I know, brothers and sisters, there are people that are getting away with things that are wrong all day, every day. Yes, brothers and sisters, I know that you have been treated wrongly and people are treating you unjustly or acting unjustly. And obviously there's nothing that you can do about it. Everything is falling on a blind eye or a deaf ear. Well, this passage comforts us: is that that may be true, and there, yet there will be a day when God will right all the wrongs, and all the wrongs will be righted. This is His job. A sobering moment for you and I this morning is not to curtsey our way through life as if it has no impact on eternity. Because even though we may not see God's judgment now, it is coming. This is not a sexy thing to talk about in today's church. But that God is judge, he will be judge. And judgment is coming. And he will be the one who weighs the right and the wrong. What shall we do? What should we do? Do we tremble and fear? Or do we have a doctrine to cover the fact that he is good also judge? In our passage, Solomon comes to the place that God is judge. He then says, I said in my heart with regard to the children, man, that, that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. What is going on here? And all of our study this week is this is the one that pushed us the farthest and pushed the envelope is that you and I are but animals, are but beasts. This word here for beast is a beast of burden. And so it still matches with this, this idea of toil or work, like a cow or an oxen or, or, or any of those other farm animals that do a lot of, of heavy lifting. So that what Solomon is doing is he's actually reducing us down to farm animals who are reduced down to only what they are able to produce. And he says that we are but beast. For what happens to the children of man—that's you and me—and what happens to beast is the same. Is anybody else offended at this point? Is anybody else shocked in all that Solomon would call you a beast of burden? Are we not? Do we have not any more dignity and worth than a mere donkey? And Solomon goes, Nah, not really that we are but beasts and that what happens to them happens to us as one dies so dies the other dagger in our heart where in the world and he keeps going all have the same breath and the man has no advantage over the beast Ah, oh, what is going on Solomon for all is vanity because everything is fleeting all go to one place and all are from the dust and to dust he returns who knows whether the spirit of man goes up or the spirit of the beast go down. The question is, we don't know because we're all the same. He is linking us with animals because, because animals, in the same way that we were having all of our faith in the justice system and we can't, this animal kingdom, they have no court of appeals. They don't know right or wrong. They just know survival, much less worship and honor and obedience. I mean, they don't know these things. So maybe, just maybe, we have no court of appeals. And lastly, maybe we are the same because he quotes the Genesis account here. He says, just to dust to dust, we will return. In the same way that the beasts of burden are dust makers, so will you and I be. Great sobriety happens with us. Solomon wants to shock us weekend and week out. And this is the shocker, that you and I are donkeys and oxen. At the end of our day, we're nothing but matter without God. If we're going to just reduce our entire life just to work and success, then you might as well just be like a donkey. Because at some point, you will give up all of your ethics, just to get ahead. And therefore, there will be no court of appeals for you and your heart. You may get caught, but in your heart your mind, you will bear no expense. And lastly, you'll just, you'll just die. On a very secular and a very materialistic view, this is what Solomon says. If all you're doing is understanding what is under the sun, without any regard to God himself, you're gonna end up like Christopher Hitchens. He's the famed atheist who says, in whatever kind of race life may be, I have very abruptly become become a finalist. Meaning, that's it. We die, that's it. If all you do is think about what is under the sun, you and Hitchens are exact same, even though you would find yourself in a different camp than him. What Solomon is saying is maybe, just maybe, there's no difference between the way that we conduct ourselves, atheist and Christian, if all we're doing is going after the success of work. And he says, it's vanity. It's all fleeting. It's so fun to appreciate to the full the truth of the, the material uh, proposition that I don't have a body. He says, that's foolishness because all I am is a body. This is the end of a person who only eats and drinks and lives without God, as they you get reduced down to a beast without any court of appeals and just knowing that you will die. We know that Jesus Christ will judge us. We know that Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. We know that we are more than just a body. What would it look like for an entire congregation to live as if that day is coming sooner rather than later? That's what Solomon has been hammering, is there is a day that is coming. And yet over and over and over, we live like this is all we got. It's not true. It's simply not true. Jesus clearly teaches that the human spirit will survive after what we do on this earth. And so this morning, we want you to consider, are you ready for that? Are you ready for what happens next? Solomon is is trying to get your attention, and so are we. The second dark picture is this idea of oppression. Verse 4 says this Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. King Solomon looks at the wickedness of injustice, but then he looks at this wickedness of oppression, this idea that there are people in this world that will try to get ahead by pushing other people down so severely that they will have no one to comfort them. No one. And I thought that the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. This is what he's wishing because Solomon is zooming out to see all of the particular forms of oppression that he sees under the suns. Every day here at the hospitals of Appalachia, in emergency rooms all throughout our region, there are people that are turning over their children to the system whom they have abused. There are 17-week-old babies that have suffered 40 or 50 different injuries to their body and handed over to the system because of the oppression that they did to a baby. Each and every day in our region, search and rescue teams, our firefighters, our first responders walk into homes of overweight men or women or elderly people who have been abandoned by their families only to literally sit and rot because they've been oppressed and who could cry out for them? Is there anyone there to comfort them, the scripture would say. Here in our town and in our region, there are backwoods discipline techniques for mothers to hold their children and hold their kids under submission. We've heard stories of scalding water, We've heard stories of cigarette burns on their skin simply to teach their kid a lesson. In the year 2016, the U.S. saw the abortion drop to its lowest since Roe v. Wade in 1973. And yet at an unprecedented rate, America still oppresses the unborn. Oftentimes, the smallest coffins are the heaviest. Jesus Christ looks at the passion and the pain of our world. And in one occasion, he breathes a sigh, the scriptures say. It's a sigh that's so deep and so strong and just has no words to it. That he sighed deeply for the groaning of the oppression of sin's effects on our world. So much so that Paul would say creation even groans. And the reason it groans is because this idea of envy is actually having an injustice and oppression over all of our world. Where are we? How can we succumb to this idea that we need to be envious in our work? Solomon is trying to gain our attention. He's trying to stop the oppression and stop the injustice because by devaluing what we have placed on work and what we have placed on work is this value to get ahead, to plan for tomorrow in which he says over and over is vanity. It's a cool breath or a warm breath on a cool morning. It's birthday candles blown out. It just vanishes like that. And so how should we, brothers and sisters, engage in this? How should we look not to envy, but to look to something else? There's an application real quick. First and foremost, look here in verse 5. It says, what do we do with envy? It says, number one, a fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. So we can respond by folded hands. Folded hands is another word for laziness or apathy or simply inaction. You don't do anything. And so in the camp of injustice, the what is happening with injustice is that they're not doing anything. They're not standing up for what is right. One way that we can look at our work is we can just have folded hands. We can be completely apathetic. We can be completely lazy or we can be reduced to inaction saying to ourselves, what's the point? There's so much injustice around us Then what's the point? The second thing that we can do is, in verse 6, it says this. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. One, you can fold your hands and do nothing. The second part of six is that you can actually have both hands full. And so where one is on the, like, what am I going to do? Lazy, apathy, and action. Now you can see your work is so strong or so worthwhile that you have both hands full of whatever the thing is that you're striving for. And if we know one thing about hands, they're to be useful. And when are you the least useful? It's when you have your hands full, right? And so the point of work is not to fill these hands up. It can't be. It cannot be. There's more to life than just getting all that you can and keeping it close to yourself and being reduced to the things that are only in your hands, Solomon says that can not be. It's not our ambition simply to acquire what the best of this world is. There's so much more than that. But the third option is the best option is this one-handed. Better is a handful, just one hand of quietness than two hands of toil. Maybe, just maybe, this idea of, yes, we are to work and enjoy it. You're good at things. Do it well. Some of you are great businessmen and businesswomen. Some of you are amazing mothers. Some of you teach for a living. Some of I you mean, just go on and on through all the occupations. You're really, really good. What Solomon's saying is don't drop it. No, hold on to it well, but make sure it doesn't consume you. The underlining issue for this one hand is to have another hand free. Maybe to hug someone else maybe to take what is yours and share it with someone else, maybe to wave, embrace. There are other things that we can do in life than just work and toil and acquire. The biblical word for this is contentment. Over and over and over, what God has required of us is contentment. As a church body, having six years of history, we've had seasons where we've just been inactive. That to our shame, there are times when we should have spoken up that we haven't. That we've sat on our hands when we should have acted. There are times in our history where all we were about is acquiring and taking and achieving and going after things. What God is asking us this morning even as a corporate context, is to, yes, work hard as unto the Lord. Work hard and yet do all things in the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. For he is the reason that we have our breath and he is the reason that we have our value. Everything under the sun can involve a lot of things. This morning, it was how we engage with our work. This morning, you have a prayer card. And on your prayer card, we would encourage you all to respond appropriately. For you, are you a folded hands? Are you both hands full? Or are you one-handed? And simply to, especially these first two, to confess. And simply just pray out loud as you pray to the Lord. If you're just more apathetic and forced to inaction, or are you probably exert too much energy and can become a workaholic, we would encourage you to pray on that card. And we're going to create some space so that you could just enjoy the Lord and hear his gentle rebuke to our hearts, because it's a gentle rebuke to all of us, not just one or two of us, it's all of us. And we are going to encourage you to turn those in Because we think it's important for you to pray that prayer, but then also that you have a body of believers around you. So we have a community care team whose their main ministry is to pray, to pray for this next month for you and your folded hands or you and your both hands full. So we're going to create some space here for you. You've got a pen in your seat and a prayer card. We just encourage you to respond to the Lord. Allow him to do the heavy lifting this morning. Brothers and sisters, in everything that we do, we want to point back to Jesus, who, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, we can be lazy or inactive, but Jesus Christ, while we were sinners, He he died for us. Jesus Christ is not inactive. He does not, not have folded hands. But even now, He has the ministry As he is our mediator, he is praying on behalf of the saints. His ministry continues and continues to be active. Unfortunately for us, he too had his both hands full. When he died on the cross, we know that both hands were stretched out and both hands were pierced. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He took the wrath of God so that we could know life and that we can know eternity. This is not a message on shame. This is a message to lift up what Jesus has done to complete the things that we cannot fulfill. At Redstone Church, we come to the Lord's table week in and week out because we want to be reminded that it's Jesus who gave his life on our behalf. And so what was once complete was now given and split gallus of wine and what was supposed to be contained he says this is my blood spilled for you and so in life and in death given for us at redstone church if you are walking with jesus if you are following after jesus if you're obeying jesus if he is your lord if he is your savior guess what this table is for you No matter if you're apathetic or a workaholic, this table's for you because he's completed that and even fully. Some of you aren't walking with Jesus. Some of you have never started a relationship with Jesus. And so you're still kind of tugging in this, this world of success and work where that's been your definition or defining yourself. We would encourage you to use this space to pray and consider Christ this morning. If you need someone to walk alongside you this morning, just know that we have our care team in the pack and they would love to pray with you this morning. The way this works is we've got four stations around the the room and uh, they are going to be, uh, they are going to be uh, giving out communion. You're gonna see all of us rise and go and take and then you're gonna see little pockets of people that pause and pray in reflection of this service. We do want you to take your prayer cards with you. It's kind of like give one, take one today. (laughs) And so we want you to, um, we've got baskets in the back, one in the back and one in the front. We would encourage you that before you take, that you let go of that burden, right? And then you accept Jesus and his, right? The way that he has completed both folded hands and full hands for us. So go ahead and rise, men and women of faith, and take as the Lord has given you, knowing that these elements are for you,